Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback around you somewhere in front of you, or if you're in the very back row, maybe behind you on that windowsill. Uh, we invite you to follow along with us as we travel through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at just two verses out of uh, the first chapter this morning, uh, but there are two very important verses of Scripture. Um, Last week, as I, was, as I was introducing the message from last week, uh, talking about the Gospel of Mark, and we covered verses 9 through 13 last week, and kind of two really huge events that were happening in Jesus' life and his ministry. The point that we were getting at was that Jesus is one person which we need to get right. We must understand exactly who this man is. And this is all of what the New Testament is driving at. This is what it is all about, this one individual. All four of the gospel accounts drive at this same point that is to get Jesus right. Who is he exactly? Now notice in what I just said, I said the word is. Who is he? I didn't use a past tense word, did I, of, well, he was somebody The Bible teaches us that, yes, he was a historical person, but what else? That he is the eternal Son of God who was and is and is to come. This is who Jesus Christ is. We must have an accurate understanding of who he is. We cannot alter who Jesus is. We cannot alter who the Father is. We cannot alter who the Holy Spirit is. In the moment that we alter anything about God, what have we done? We have created a different God. We do not have the God of the Bible. So to get Jesus wrong, we'll get God the Father wrong, which will get God the Holy Spirit wrong. We must get the Trinity correct and accurate. And I know some of you are like, oh no, I hope we don't go through that today. We're not in great detail, but yes, this is a very important point about who Jesus is this morning And getting God right is the most significant task that you have in your life. Now I know as we have high school graduates thinking about all these tasks that they have ahead of them, maybe of a job or or of school, those pale in comparison to the task in which you have of getting Jesus Christ right, of getting God right in your life. And how do we find out what is right about God or about Jesus? Is it through our philosophy? Is it through our traditional observations? No. No. It is by what God has told us about himself and through his word. This is how we find out who God is. It's by, it's by what he has said about himself. Not about what we think about him or ideas about him, but what has he said about himself. God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. This is a, that right there is an amazing thought to think of. The God of all creation wants you to know him. It's not just ideas about him that you need to know. Let me ask you this question to start things off this morning. Is your faith based upon ideas about God or is it based upon knowing God? There's a big difference between the two of those things, isn't there? A big difference between just knowing some things about God as if he had had given you some sort of baseball card. Who remembers baseball cards? I know they're kind of a thing of the past. Maybe I'm showing my age, not just by my hair. Um, 
that on a baseball card you have the player on the front, right? And what's on the back side? All the statistics. Now, one of my favorite baseball players was George Brett. Anybody else? Royals fans? Okay, we got a few. So on the back of the card, you see all the years and all the statistics, all these things about who this person is and all what he's accomplished. Is that how you think of God whenever you pick up the Bible? That you see him as this baseball card that you've picked up, like, oh, isn't he amazing? Isn't he great? But you know what? I have never met George Brett. I don't know the man at all. Now, years ago, I could have rattled off all kinds of statistics about who he was and things that he'd accomplished, but I don't know the man. That is not how we should think of God in this distant kind of relationship of, well, I know some things about him. I need to know him. And God is inviting you this morning to know him. Man, what a beautiful thing that is to know God. You must be known by him to be saved by him. Not only do we need to know God and understand him accordingly, but also We need to understand the message that he's given to us. And this is where the title of this morning's message comes from, is the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is just as important as Jesus himself. So if we get Jesus right, more than likely we're going to get the message right, but I just want to make this really clear for us this morning, that we must get the message accurate and true. And so where do we find this? Well, we're going to find this in just two verses this morning, kind of an overarching a picture of what Jesus was about. We must get the person of Jesus correct, but we also have to get this message correct. If we are to go out and make disciples of this world, we have to have the right message to do so, not just one that we've created. Now, maybe you've heard people say things like, well, you know, Jesus, he was all about just loving people, and we should just go around just love-bombing people. Have you heard of this idea? This happened back in the 70s, and it's resurged again in recent years where we just want to show the love of Jesus and so we just run up to people and we just hug them and tell them how much God loves them and also how amazing they are and all kinds of these kind of things but we never talk about sin or about repentance we just want to love people maybe you've heard that maybe you've heard something like well Jesus was all about helping the poor and the sick, and we should devote our lives to those things as well, because that's what Jesus did. Are these accurate as to what Jesus was all about? Is that the message of Jesus? Is that what he gave his life to? Was it to show love, in quotes, to everyone which he encountered, not saying anything negative or offensive and always being in agreement to their behaviors and their lifestyles and their philosophies is that what Jesus was about or that if we are not totally focused on giving everything to the poor and to the sick then we're not really fulfilling the message of Jesus is this accurate to what the message of Jesus was well there are titles for those kinds of gospels that I just described to you this morning because they are not the gospel message from the bible We have the false love gospel of you just need to love everybody and just love bomb people. Or the social justice gospel. Well, we need to be about these things because that's what Jesus was all about. This is not at all what the Jesus of the Bible was about. We will see that here this morning. We'll see from Mark's own perspective what the overall message of Jesus was and also 
we'll understand what it was not. What was the top priority in Jesus' message? What was the top priority in his ministry? Well, this is where we find verses 14 and 15 very helpful for us. Look at verse 14 in Mark chapter 1. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of, of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we are witnessing here in these verses, and again, if you've been with us through this journey, through the first chapter so far, Mark, you have seen a transition take place from this introductory uh, statement that we found through verses 1 through 8, basically, and then into verse 9, and now here to verse 14, we see a transition taking place, and John the Baptist is one that is kind of in part of this whole idea of transitioning out of who John the Baptist is into who Jesus is. And so last week we looked at verses 9 through 13 in the baptism of Jesus and the temptations of Jesus. And now here, Mark starts off this verse, verse 14, with now after. Now one thing to keep in mind as Western readers into this text, we cannot think that this gospel or the other gospels are written with Western people in mind. Uh, Did you know that America wasn't discovered until 1492? This was written just, you know, a thousand plus years before that. So try not to impose your Western thinking into this text of, well, why is Mark writing it like the way he he does here? Why, Why is he not writing like how I think he should do it in a perfect little timeline of events. And that's maybe my type A coming out of how I want this text to be and how I want the scriptures to be, but that's not at all the purpose of the writing. And so we have to understand what is the purpose of the writing. And so whenever he says this now after John was arrested, he's not meaning that this is an instantaneous thing that's taking place. Don't have this idea of a perfect timeline in your mind as you look at this text. Because whenever we look at John's gospel the Apostle John, in his gospel, we learn that there's probably a a lot longer time frame than what Mark is kind of proposing here. So don't think that this is a short amount of time. Now this mention of John being arrested, it's spoken of more in Mark's gospel in chapter 6. And if you've read or been reading through the gospel of Mark, you've probably found that. So the question that I had was, Well, why is it that Mark is delaying the explanation of what is happening in the arrest of John? Why doesn't he just explain that here? And again, from what I would do, I would just include that here. But why doesn't Mark do that? Well, I think there's a really good point of why Mark doesn't do that. Because John is not the point. Who is the point of the text? Jesus the Christ is the point. And so why does John not really matter to Mark at this point in time because of what we have witnessed already from verse 1 through 3, from verses 9 through 13. Jesus is the one who matters. It's not John the Baptist. Now, Mark is showing us that God removes John from the picture. And so he just simply tells us, now after John was arrested. And then in chapter 6 of Mark, we find, what are the terrible things that actually happened to John? And what we find is that God uses the evil of Herod to remove John from the scene and make Jesus front and center on the stage. Now in that statement that I just gave you, that God uses the evil of Herod, maybe you bristled a little bit at that. 
of God would use evil? Let me give you another text out of the Old Testament to help you think through how God uses all things. Genesis chapter 50, we have the story of Joseph, you know, the coat of many colors, that Joseph. And Joseph, he has been in Egypt, he has went through some terrible things in his life, and then what we find in verse 20 is that his brothers that sold him into slavery, really most of them intended to kill him and wanted to kill him, this is what Joseph has to say to his brothers, that now he is in a position of authority over them, this is what he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but look at this, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was in control of the evil intentions of these people. He was over that. He he knew what the brothers were intending, what they had purposed. But God was preserving Joseph for a cause, for a purpose, and it was his. And the same thing is applied now to John the Baptist and what is happening with him John had done exactly what God wanted him to do. John had fulfilled what he was sent to this earth to do. He is now not rewarded for being faithful, but it seems to be that he's being punished. And we ask the question, why is this happening? Have you ever asked that question about your suffering? Why? Why is this happening? Have I not been faithful to you, God? God, why are you putting me through this? Haven't I been obedient to you, faithful to you? Like Joseph had been, like John had been. Well, I want to help you, maybe, maybe help you understand an aspect of human suffering, and specifically to the Christian and the Christian life. One of the key aspects of human suffering for the Christian is it is for the purpose of revelation. For the purpose of revelation. I want to take you to the book of Romans chapter 8. And uh, verses 18 through 28. These verses here are very helpful from Paul's writing to help us understand the, the purpose of suffering. The purpose of what is happening with John. What happened with Joseph. And a right perspective of how we should think about these things. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 18. Paul says, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope. That is seen is not hoped for. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice what Paul is helping us to understand here. Paul is talking about suffering, his own suffering. And if you knew anything about Paul, you, you would know that his suffering is great. He has been through many, many things. And what does he say there in verse 18? I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what? They are not worth comparing. That there's no comparison to the suffering which I am going through to the glory that is going to be revealed. There's no comparison. Is that your first thought as you go through suffering, that this does not compare to the glory that is to come? Or is it more inward focused to yourself of, I can't believe this is happening to me? Paul says, these things do not compare. The suffering which I'm going through, it doesn't compare to what's going to happen. And then look at the last verse that we read, verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, those that belong to Christ... These people, as he said in verse 1 of chapter 8, all things work together for good. All things. Now, is it all good things that he's talking about? No, because the context of this is saying, no, all the sufferings, all, the, all these bad things, all of that is working to good for those who are called according to, notice this, his purpose. The suffering in which you are going through, you may not understand, you may not comprehend, you may never understand in this life. But understand this, that it does not compare to the glory that will be revealed to this world because of your suffering. And maybe the suffering in which you go through, and even in your death, it will reveal something to those around you. It is for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people in which you are suffering. Don't discount that. Don't think that whenever you are suffering through something that God is punishing you, because again, Romans 8.1 tells us that that is not the case at all. And Paul even says that here in Romans 8, that this suffering is not because of, of being faithful to him, that he's punishing you for doing that. That is not at all what God does. But God is he's preparing something. He is revealing something. And this is what happens with John the Baptist, is that he is being used and abused for the purpose of revealing the Son of God. I think if you were to ask John the Baptist today, if you could, was the suffering that you went through in prison, was the beheading that happened to you, was it worth it, John? I think he would easily and heartily say, yes, it was worth it. What does Paul say about his suffering? Well, if you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, and maybe you know this verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is how Paul viewed his life and how he viewed his death, that if I die, it is, it is gain for me, but if I live, I live for Christ. This is exactly what's happening with John. When John did his job, which he did exceptionally well, he was not what we would think as rewarded here on this earth, but he suffered and he died. And Christian, when you've been living in obedience and you're confronted with suffering, don't think, don't think that this is punishment. 
This was not the case with John or with Paul, but we should think, like Paul, to live is for Christ. To suffer is for Christ. Understand that God is going to do something with your suffering. It is not a meaningless thing in which you are going through. It is not insignificant in the eyes of God. It plays a huge part into His plan and into His revelation to other people. Whether it is a death, whether it is a sickness, whether it's cancer, it is not insignificant. God knows, God has allowed, and God is going to use it. He is going to use it. God will not give His glory to another. Isaiah 42.8 tells us that. And what we have with John the Baptist is this fact, that God is not going to share His glory with anybody else, even if it's someone like John the Baptist. And so what does is, what is God do? He removed John off the scene, so we could think of it like this, that God is clearing the stage of everything else, of John the Baptist, of all the prophets which John would represent, and now we have Jesus the Christ, front and center. Jesus is the one that this is all about. This is why God removed John out of the way. If you look back back at verse 14, there in Mark, it says Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. We, We get first look at what Jesus was about. He came proclaiming. This transition that's happening between John and Jesus, there's no loss of anything. There's no loss uh, in this transition from, uh, from a ministry, st- ministry standpoint or an influence standpoint. Nothing is lost but only multiplied, and we will see this through Mark's gospel. <clears throat> when Jesus starts his ministry, Mark is telling us that Jesus is doing the, the exact same things in which John was doing, proclaiming the same thing, and that is the gospel. Now, Jesus, he did not come into this world as a silent servant. He did not come just silently loving people, silently doing things. What did Jesus come to do? To proclaim. That's what he came to do. He came speaking the truth of God. It was not merely just social justice or mercy ministries that he was about. He was about a message. And it was not just a wordless message, but a message full of words, proclaiming a truth. And what is it that he proclaimed? Well, it tells us the gospel of God. What does that word gospel mean? You know this. We explained this already. What does gospel mean? Good news. The good news. Where does this come from? This idea of good news. We see this all over the New Testament. We talk in these kinds of terms as, as believers in Christ. But where does that come from? It has its origins in the Old Testament. One place, specifically, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. We get this idea of good news. Isaiah 40, verse 9 says this, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. What is the good news of Isaiah 40? Behold, your God. This is the good news that they are to herald, that God is here. Look, look to him. This means that God is the good news, meaning that God is the gospel. This is what the gospel is. 
It's God. It's not just some obscure idea. It's a person. This is who it is. It's God. God is the source of the gospel. So understand this. If your gospel, the one that you talk about, the one that you are motivated by, if your gospel puts God in a secondary position as a side note, it is not the gospel of the Bible. God is the center of the gospel. Now, what we have from this point is a connection that has to be made to to Jesus. Well, how does Jesus fit into this whole idea of the good news and this proclaiming that he came doing? Well, Mark has already told us in the first 13 verses that Jesus is God in the flesh. We saw this really in verse 1. But through the first 13 verses, we witnessed this. But now, let me take you to another place in Scripture, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, where Jesus himself says this, speaks this, and Jesus said these words. Look at John, chapter 14, starting verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Meaning, Philip, why don't you know me yet? Why don't you understand? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, at first glance, we're like, oh, well, okay, he's making this comparison, him and God and the Father, and there's so much more that's happening here in these words. What Jesus is saying is something that has never been spoken before by anybody that is sane. Nobody in Jewish tradition would ever speak in these kinds of terms about God and about themselves. There was always a huge gap between the prophets, between kings, between the Pharisees, and talking about themselves with God. What Jesus has done there in John 14 is equating himself with the Father in such a way that the Jewish people wanted to kill him because he was making himself out to be God. Now, the reality is, again from Mark, Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. And so Jesus is essentially the gospel. Because behold, your God, this is the good news. Look, Jesus is the good news. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 15. Look what verse 15 says about this good news. It says, And saying, I must fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in this good news. Well, who actually first said this? John the Baptist is really the first one that said it. We don't have that from Mark, but John the Baptist was preaching this same exact thing, the same exact words. Now, this first phrase that we have here, the time is fulfilled, this has, a, this has massive implications as what this means and what this is, how, how this should really affect us and how we should think about God and about Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a couple of points as to really what this means and what it implies. The first thing is that God has been sovereign over time. The time is fulfilled. God has been sovereign over time. There has not been a single point in time which God has not been in control of ever since he created it. 
the entire existence of time has been for the purpose of serving him. Now, this is completely backwards to how we think, isn't it? Because we are always enslaved to the clock. Even now, I'm a slave to the clock. You are a slave to the clock. Like, but this is not God. He is outside of time. He is outside of space. He created these things. And so we cannot impose, again, our ideas of time or ideas of space onto God. We, we must let him be who he is. And he is above these things. He's beyond these things. He's not bound by them like we are. And it would be foolish for us to put God inside of that box of time or of space like we are. So we should not do that. Time is a tool in the hand of God. And this is essentially what is being said here. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. This tool that God was using, it has served its purpose. And... The second thing that we have here is that God has been sovereign over history as well. Not only has God been over time and in control of time, but God has also been in control of the history that has been made. From the very beginning of creation to the very end of creation, God is in control. There has never been a single moment in history where God was unaware of it. Not only because he's omniscient, knowing all things, but also because he's omnipotent, having all power, and also that he's omnipresent, being everywhere at the same time. Meaning that in all of human history, all of the existence of the universe, God has not allowed anything to escape his authority. All of history has been used for a purpose. What is that purpose? To the glory of God. This purpose that John served in being arrested and being beheaded and the message which he presented, all these things about John, all of it was serving the purpose of showing who Jesus Christ is. It was an evil act by Herod that removed John, but again, who was in control of all of this? God was. It served the purpose of God. History belongs to God. There's not been a king or a slave That has not been under the sovereign authority of God. He is in control. Again, in reference to your suffering, He is in control of that. He is aware of it. Not just aware, He has power and authority over it. The third thing I want you to understand about this phrase, the time is fulfilled, is that God has been faithful to His word This word that we have in this phrase, fulfilled, it means to complete. And I'm sure that's probably already where your mind went. It just means to complete. But actually, the Greek word is very helpful for us to understand what what has been happening over time and over history. The Greek word has a definition meaning filling to the full or filling to the brim. So it's kind of this picture of of a vessel of some sort, a cup, if you will. A metaphorical cup of humanity's existence in the process of time and history being filled by the promises and the word of God drop by drop, line by line out of your Bible. For what purpose? To point to one specific individual. To witness to one specific event and person. It's Jesus Christ. This cup that is there being filled up to the brim, being met in completeness, is for a person. 
Jesus is that fulfillment of God's word. He is the fulfillment of history, of time. He, he completes these things. The cup is now overflowing. All of time, all of history, that has been serving this one purpose. Jesus Christ. There's a second phrase that is used there in verse 15. In connection to this idea of the time is fulfilled. It says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what exactly does that mean? Well it does have direct connection to these three things. uh, About God being sovereign over time. Over history. About him being faithful to his word. Yes it, it is connected to that. But it also has something else to offer to us. About what is happening here with Jesus. And what he is declaring. When it says the kingdom of God is at hand. It means that there's a new era starting. So things have been fulfilled, picture that in your mind, by Jesus in his coming, but also there's something new being declared by Jesus, by John the Baptist as well. There's a consistent theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, and what it is is this idea of not yet, not yet, not yet. Even whenever you have a moment in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where David, for for example, shows up and you're like, Oh, this must be the one. This must be the one that God had promised from Genesis 3.15. But, but, but from David's own perspective, what does he say? Not yet. It's not me. And so throughout all the Old Testament, we have this not yet, not yet, not yet, until what? Jesus comes, and John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one. As Mark says in his gospel, this is the one. He is the fulfillment. He is starting something new. It is unlike what the Israelites had been experiencing. Whenever we see this play out with John's baptisms, there's this picture of something new happening. Again, baptism was not something new to the culture, but the way John was doing it was very new. And Jesus is playing out this picture in front of them. John was not the king, but only the herald of the king and of the kingdom But the king has come, and the king declares the same thing. There's a new era starting. It's not only for Israel, but also for all of humanity. They've been brought in by this Christ. There's one little word here in our English translation that should be really impactful for us. And it's this word, is. Is. The kingdom is at hand. What does is mean? It means now, currently, in this moment, not delaying. That's what is means. This one little word should really change the way that we, as believers, see the world and the way that we impact the world. Christian, do not think that the kingdom of God is far away. And if that has been your thought that, well, the kingdom, you know, it's coming, it's future, it's distant, you're not wrong but you're just not all the way right. It is present. It is now. What does Jesus say? It's at hand. Is at hand. So we cannot think only that it's distant, that it's far away, but Jesus preaches it has arrived. This new era is now. So Christian, the kingdom in which you live in is now. Yes, it is a future kingdom to be fully manifested when he returns, but now is how you should be living. We are part of the kingdom now, and I 
hope that you are, then why is it that we keep acting like it is only in the future? Why do we have so many people claiming to be in the kingdom of God, but not living as though they are in the kingdom now? They live however they want. Why, what are we really waiting on? The time is now to live for the king. What should have priority over the king and over the kingdom of God? You know the answer. What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing should have priority over the king or over the kingdom. So why have we, parents, allowed other things to become the priority for our families and for our children? Why have we become so passive in our involvement with service in the church? Why do we struggle to find people to volunteer for ministries or positions of leadership? I believe all of this comes down to the reality that we are not living for the kingdom now. We are delaying obedience to the king. We know what is right. We know it should be done, but we, we delay. I think that we are holding on to a false hope when we do this, believing that we have more time than what really we do. There is a future ahead of us, but how much of that future do we really have? This is not how a Christian should think. A Christian should not hear the words of their king and then delay response to the commands of the king. I'm sure there are some here today that they know that there's something that needs to be done in their life. There needs to be obedience to the king now. You know that you've been delaying something. You've been putting it off. Why? Please examine your heart this morning. If you have a habit of hearing the word of God, hearing the commands of the king, and delaying and putting off and not following in obedience, there's a real good possibility that if this is the habit of your life, then maybe you're not a Christian. There must be obedience. There must be a right response to the king. And what is the only right response to the king? Jesus tells us what it is. Look at verse 15 again. He says that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What should we do about this? What does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a required response. This is not an optional thing that Jesus says, you know, if you feel like it. If you want to be part of the kingdom, that then you must repent, you must believe. The king has spoken these words. He has declared this. He is not begging you, nor is he giving you another option. He is commanding you to repent and believe. Christian, listen, we we do not need to tiptoe with the gospel message. And what I mean by that is, you don't need to tiptoe around people's feelings and how maybe abrasive the gospel message is. You don't go out of your way to be a jerk to people, not only common sense, but we, we shouldn't be afraid to tell people the truth of what Jesus says, which is to repent and believe the gospel. Again, this was not a suggestion for you, and it is not a suggestion for anybody else. Whenever we tell the gospel to people, we should not have this idea of, well, you know, if, if you feel like it, or if that fits in your priorities of life, then you should probably repent and believe. 
We, we shouldn't talk to people in a sense of, yeah, I know that you, you believe those things. I know that you have that other God that you worship, but you, know, you probably should repent. You probably should believe in Jesus. I mean, I know you have that thing, and that maybe that works for you. I don't know. I don't want to offend you. That is not how we evangelize. We have been commanded by the king to call people to the command, which is repent and believe in the gospel. This is the command that you've been given. Don't treat it like a suggestion. Well, if you want to, if you feel comfortable with it, if the time is right, what does Jesus say about the timing? Now is the time. There is no other time to respond than now. Christian, your king, he has given you this authority to declare this message, which is his message, and it is to call people to repentance and to belief. It is only through this in which they will find salvation. There is no other way. We must not soften this command of our king and make it merely just a suggestion to people. When we speak of change and behavior, in thinking about our children, we, we call them to repentance and belief. This is how we should discipline them. When we think of speaking about change and calling for change in the realm of government, what do we do? Well, you know, the best philosophy I've heard or the best tradition that we've had. No, we do exactly what we have been told by our king to do, and that is to call them into repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. It is a command that spans all areas of humanity. There is no single human construct where this does not apply. The king has spoken. And what king is he? The king of kings. We must follow the command of the king. We must follow now. Now is the time. Jesus came with a message. It was not a confusing message or an unclear message. It was a message that was very clear. It did not change or contradict the words of God. It was in connection with John's gospel that he preached. And Jesus preaches the same message. And it's simply what he says in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the command to the person that has never done this before, that is not a born-again believer, this is the command that you are given today. Turn from your sin. Reject your ways of righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ. This is the call that goes out to you. But Christian, do not think that it is only for them. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I did that repentance thing. I did that, that believing thing in Jesus, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Understand that this command is for you as well. Your life should be marked by repentance and faith in Jesus. Week after week, year after year. We should be constantly discovering new areas in our life that are in complete contradiction to what God has called us to do or places where he's told us to obey. And whenever we are confronted with those things, we respond to this simple message of Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel. And when should we respond? Now. Now. And now is the time of response. The band is going to come. We are 
going to sing a few songs. We have a song of response. We invite you at this time, if you want to talk to myself or to one of the staff or elders, we would love to do that at this time. But if you, again, if you don't feel like, ah, I don't know what to say or I don't exactly know what I, I need to talk about, you can talk to us afterward. We're more than happy to do that. But listen, Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. The command to you today is to respond. Respond in obedience today to the command of God. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been thinking of ideas of God or about Jesus that are completely inaccurate, that are completely untrue. There have been a completely false gospel that you've been believing in. Repent and believe in the right Jesus Christ today. Would you stand with me? I'll pray, and Jason's going to lead us. Father, as we we have just another moment in time in which is in your sovereign hand, in which that moment of time is creating another moment of history which is in your sovereign hand. And God, as we have read your word which has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Lord, let it not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts. Lord, let us respond to our King this morning. And whatever step of obedience which we need to take as an unbeliever or as a believer in Jesus. God, whether you are calling people out of the dark depravity of the heart for the first time, or God, you are again beckoning us back into right relationship because of a sin that is in our life or a a place of disobedience that we keep stumbling over, God, help us to respond now. Respond now to our King. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.